Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. All of us who work in oil and gas are facing massive disruption. And this season, our third season on the Energy Thinks podcast, I'm speaking with game-changing leaders who are either inside or adjacent to our industry. And these are folks who can help provide perspective on how we can pivot from being disrupted to being the disruptor. So today I have a really interesting guest, Tim Moen. He's Executive Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer at Persephone. I'm excited to speak to Tim for a number of reasons. He recently wrote a book called Changing Business from the Inside Out. He served in leadership positions, uh, including as the Chief Executive for the Global Reporting Initiative, which many of you ESG experts know as GRI. And prior to that, he served as a sustainability executive in the tech industry, including working for BASF, Intel, and Apple. And in fact, you'll hear a uh, story today from his time at Apple that's really relevant to those of us in the oil and gas industry. You can learn more about Tim's biography and background in our show notes. And of course, you can learn more about the Energy Thinks podcast and our work at Adam and Team at energythinks.com. Now, here's my conversation with game-changing leader, Tim Moen. Tim Moen, welcome. And thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Tisha. It's a pleasure to be with you today. You have a really unique seat um, with your exposure and and novel work in corporate responsibility and ESG strategies, and you work outside the oil and gas industry and have your whole career. What what do you think from your seat um, oil and gas companies are not considering as they're, they're getting going, embarking upon their implementing their own ESG strategies? Yeah, it's a great opening question, you know, and just to sort of frame it and put it in context a little bit, you know, I've been working in the quote unquote sustainability space for over 35 years now. And before we even had that term uh, back when it was, you know, environmental science and good old fashioned command and control regulation. Uh, and, and in all those years, I've never seen a more dynamic time in this space. Uh, let's face it, you know, ESG and climate change in particular has just dominated the headlines. It's become uh, a part of corporate life. It's become part of investment decisions. And this is all very new and it's happening really, really fast. So to approach your question, then if I'm in oil and gas, I start to feel like, you know, the very business model that has brought us success is really at risk. And this brings in some very existential questions to be answered at the level of the board of directors and C-suite. And you've seen what happened this year back in May, you know, when ExxonMobil, you know, lost a vote at their annual general meeting when the institutional investors uh, sided with one of the activist investors, uh, Engine One, and voted in three out of four new board directors, and the fourth just barely missing the vote. Uh, so that's the kind of change that's really taking off right now. And so, if I were on the inside of one of these companies, I'd be thinking, okay, what what do I do to transition 
to a new energy future. Everybody's going to need energy, but they're going to need it in different forms. How do I become part of that change? And what does that transition look like? And how do I build that orderly transition with such little time remaining and the whole world sort of, you know, ganging up against us, if you will? I think that's that's really the discussion that needs to happen. You made such a nice bridge from our first podcast guest for this season, which um, who was David Victor, and he did the academic work behind Engine Number One's um, approach to Exxon's investors, and he really came up with um, a, a similar framing that you just made, which is looking at this existential risk to the business model and thinking more than just a sustainability strategy. A couple of years ago, um, companies would say, ESG, isn't that just the new sustainability, the new CSR? Like, what's next? And and it was a very superficial sort of uh, assessment. But now, to your point, companies are really deeply wondering how this is going to affect their board, their organizational structure, and their culture. And so I want to get some more guidance from you about that. Um, you, I mentioned in the intro that you um, wrote a book, Changing Business from the Inside Out, and it talks about guidance on corporate social responsibility and ESG strategy. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about how to take this work out of the superficial and into the corporate culture, into perhaps the organizational structure. How can companies think about this in a way that's going to be transformative and enduring? Yeah, I think that's exactly the right question, Tisha, because you're right. Up until now, uh, sustainability and ESG has been, uh, let's just say, more of a marketing pitch than anything else for a lot of companies. And Mm -hmm. and certainly I experienced that in my uh, roles throughout my private sector career. Um, But that's changing and changing rapidly. And and to get to your question, I think where uh, especially oil and gas companies are going to start to feel it. Is is through their investors. Uh, we're we're really starting to see that pressure being layered on, as I mentioned before. But it's not going to stop there. Um, I had a career also before this in the federal government, where I was a regulator uh, for about ten years. And good old fashioned regulation is making a comeback. Um, I think under mm-hmm. this administration, we're going to see uh, not just disclosure laws, but um, requirements to mitigate. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and that's going to happen across the world. So it's not just one jurisdiction, but but multiple jurisdictions. And so if any of those signals weren't you know, heard, they should be heard now because it's really time for uh, the um, sustainability guy who may be working on a uh, a couple of awards and reports and nice to do stuff to be invited into the C-suite um, about just to understand, you know, what are the data? Where are we heading? And then to really get into some strategic level conversations about how energy companies can switch and change. And and this is a very, very, you know, like I said, existential change for these companies. And it may be a terrible analogy, but I'll use it anyway. Um, Think about what, you know, tobacco went through about 10 years ago, uh, you know, or 20 years ago now, but they're still selling tobacco, right? People are still using it, but, you know, you're advocating and making, you're making a product that you're advocating against, uh, which is a really, really difficult thing to do. So to go through that kind of mental shift 
and then to go through it on a strategic level where you're actually planning out your investments uh, is, is a big, big change that I think most companies haven't even encountered yet. But as we mentioned at the first question, they're being forced to. And so rather than being forced to by others, I think it's now time to really go on that strategic retreat, bring some directors, bring the board together and start having those conversations. Yeah, I think you're right. What you're really laying out is the difference between a forced reactive strategy, which we have observed how how that goes, and uh, a proactive strategy, particularly for companies who are maybe smaller um, and and more of a have perhaps less exposure because they're a midstream oil pipeline company. Now's the time to be thinking about the role in the energy future, as opposed to waiting for investors plus regulation plus public opposition to make operations um, impossible. So you you all you you are a very prolific writer and I appreciate that because you have a very pragmatic um, and no-nonsense approach. And you, you recently uh, put forward an opinion piece why won't companies release good corporate sustainability data? And I can tell you one of the reasons is that um, it's hard to know what a company needs and then go get it because it takes a whole year to collect the data and then another whole year to put it out there. And so we are really advising our clients to get ahead of this, to be thinking about what the public and the stakeholders are going to expect next. So they're collecting it in 2021 and they can put it out there in 2022. What do you think, of, what do you think are going to be the most, the, the next things coming in on expectations? What do, what, what do you think the public stakeholders, investors are going to expect companies to disclose about their operations? Well, well first you, you have it exactly right. I mean, it's, it's sort of fruit of the same tree when we were discussing kind of sustainability's uh role within a company is not being all that powerful. Uh, you know, so the tools that that function has had within a corporate structure have not been great. Uh, so often data is collected and it's, you know, old data, it's not quality controlled. It has not yet reached that level of rigor that investors demand. Uh, and, and so that has to change and will change because what we're seeing uh, is, uh, these mandates, you, you know, the SEC has said that they will have a proposal this year, 2021, uh, for climate disclosure uh, requirements. Uh, and this will no longer be subject to a materiality test, is, is what I'm learning from uh, the context I have. It will be a line item mandate uh, to be disclosed along mm. with financial information. And that normally uh, brings in the need to have audited and assured statements. And right now, most companies are way far away from having that kind of rigor in order to stand up to an audited and assured statement of, of climate disclosure. But it's coming, and it's coming really, really quickly. Uh, and again, it's not just in the U.S. The European Union is moving forward with something called uh, the, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, CSRD, uh, which I'm now becoming involved with as well. And the International Financial Reporting System, IFRS, is developing a climate standard. Uh, so all of this stuff is moving incredibly rapidly. Um, and there are tools out there to do this. It's just most companies have not invested in it. It's hard work involves, you know, if you're a large enterprise, it involves just about everything you do, including the value mm -hmm. chain. And so it's it's very hard work, but your advice to, to your clients is exactly right. It doesn't get easier by waiting. It gets harder. So you got to get out in front of this. 
And the the type of data you're speaking to, SEC financial disclosures related to climate risk, these get back to the heart of strategy because it's not just how can um, climate related events affect physical structures. It's how can climate related regulation like a price on carbon or border adjustment tax affect the existential uh, financial viability of a business model. So every everything you say points back to your original point, which is that we're really getting to a fundamental framing about how oil and gas companies are positioning themselves uh, for the energy future. Um, Tim, I'm cu- I, I want to run my uh, my hypothesis by you and see what you think. So we advise oil and gas companies to think about this vision of the energy future of a decarbonizing energy system as an opportunity for incumbent firms, as opposed to a risk, as opposed to an existential risk that's going to run you out of town. It's an opportunity for tremendously large companies who operate at scale with billions of dollars of R&D and some of the brightest minds in the world to create the vision and execute on it for the energy future. Um, What do you think of that vision? Is it viable? Um, Does it fill you with hope? Is it impossible? Uh, I'd be curious from the outside perspective, this idea that that we advocate within the industry, how it lands uh, to you. You know, it's a great question. I I go back to, you mentioned my book earlier, and one of the, the sort of key themes there is incrementalism. Um, you know, you have to look at where we are and the investments that we have made, uh, and you're not going to have just huge stranded assets across the board. You know, whether we like it or not, our, our society right now runs on fossil fuel. And, and so we're, we are envisioning a future, and now we're seeing that future actually accelerate towards us faster than maybe we thought. Uh, however, you know, you, you have to transition from where we are today to that future, and, and that's, the, I think, the main question I think your clients and uh, anyone listening really needs to wrestle with. It's like, my core competency is X. How do I apply my core competency to this future that we see coming very rapidly? And, and your other point about opportunity is spot on as well. I mean, look at what's happening in the U.S. Congress right now. You know, we have this one infrastructure package followed by another even bigger infrastructure package, which is loaded with all sorts of incentives, subsidies, tax breaks, et cetera, that are are basically there for companies who want to take this journey. Uh, So I think there are a lot of opportunities for companies who see their future, their core competencies reflected in making the transition to a low carbon economy. Mm, Thank you for that. Yeah, you're you're right. And it is a it's a, a different paradigm to think about engaging with um, an infrastructure package to develop those new capabilities um, for the industry as well. The 2021 shareholder proxy season held important lessons for oil and gas companies with investors imposing new demands on targeted firms. What does all this mean for your company? Adam Mateen's latest white paper gives you our top line proxy season insights. Download today at energythinks.com backslash papers. That's energythinks.com backslash papers. And now back to the show. So you also uh, have a company. Um, Persephone. And can you talk a little bit about what you do um, 
how you help companies reduce their carbon footprint and what some common obstacles are, because this is going to be a topic of keen interest to all our listeners uh, in the in the short, medium and long term. I'll answer that question with a bit of a personal uh, reflection or personal story as well. Um, so I recently stepped down as uh, I was chief executive of the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI. Uh, which is the world's largest by adoption uh, sustainability standards. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't really planning to go back to work. <laughs> I was going to do a lot of freelancing stuff, spend some time with my grandkids, that kind of thing. And I got swept off my feet by Persephone. And, and the reason why is is the, the many years of experience that I had working at big companies, tech companies, Intel, Apple, AMD. And in all that work, we just never had very good tools to measure, not much less manage issues like climate change. Uh, so we would scurry around at the end of the year with spreadsheets and, and, you know, trying to get people on the phone and give us data and quality control was always an issue. And then by the time, you know, the year passed, it would be six months before we got the report out. It's just really no way to run it. And so what Persephone offers, I mean, the short form of it is is basically the SAP of carbon. Uh, it, if you look at what carbon is, it's essentially a data problem. Every transaction that happens within a company has carbon implications. And what Persephone has done is basically take taken those, those enterprise-level transaction systems like SAP, like Oracle, and applied uh, through artificial intelligence the correct emission factor that goes with each transaction. So then you have a ledger of what, what actually happened. You can audit it. You can assure it. But you also have real-time scope one, scope two, scope three, for those of you who are into this stuff, uh, carbon information that you can see and most importantly manage by forecasting it into the future. So it's a game changer. And when I saw that and when I realized where this is all heading, I I, I couldn't say no. So I've been in this, uh, this really interesting company now for about eight months. And it's just, it's like having a rocket ship strapped to your back. The thing is really taken off. That's amazing because the obstacles you reflect, it's really hard to manage and demonstrate emissions reductions when we don't have good baseline information. So I love I love that you're working um, in this space and bringing so much of your background and passions uh, together. And we could all only hope for the kind of work that inspires that kind of uh, passion in lieu of um, an early retirement. <laughs> so I, I, I want to pivot a little bit to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, a really important part of a corporate social responsibility program and something that our industry is working really hard to incorporate into our culture and leadership uh, among our companies. So um, you have a chapter in your book dedicated to the topic. Um, And I'm wondering if you could just tell us in your own words, why is diversity, equity, and inclusion important to a company's corporate social and responsibility program and anything um, that you have learned along the way? Yeah. I, I think the way I would frame the question is why is it important to the company, not just the company's CSR program? Uh, and, and that is the sort of thread that I try to weave through um, my chapter. And a lot has changed since I wrote that. Um, but you really have to look at it from a business value perspective. You know, companies are not NGOs. They're, they're for-profit institutions. And they really ought to be focused on what 
business value uh, is really associated with diversity and inclusion. Uh, one of the big changes since I wrote the book was we added another letter into the abbreviation. So it's now diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think that E in the middle has actually confused a lot of companies about what to do. But when you really look at it, the idea is fairly simple. The idea is that if the people within your company reflect the people that you're selling to, the, the community outside your company, you're going to make better decisions about how to sell into that community. That's that's it. Um, but you can't just stop at counting heads. You have to really get those heads to count, which means, you know, they have to be feeling included. And that's where it gets a little touchy feely. Right. So there's there's this notion. I, I, I love the term uh, psychological safety. Uh, do people in your company feel safe to bring up ideas? Are they motivated and rewarded to be candid, uh, take a stand, take risks? Or do you, you know would they prefer to have the real conversation in the hallway rather than in the meeting room? And that's where inclusion really comes in. And there's all sorts of ways to, to bring out the best in people, to allow them to bring their whole selves to work and to feel included and have that sense of psychological safety. So you're getting the best out of your workforce. The equity part is more difficult. Um, whenever I've had these conversations with people in the business world, they, they sort of go back to the, the standard diversity, which is, you know, counting heads and inclusion, making heads count bit of it. And they haven't quite figured out, well, what is what does equality really mean? Um, and, you know, some companies are starting to look at things like gender pay gaps within their uh, organization and, and try to figure out that from a data perspective. But the real challenge is working outside the four walls of a company and saying, what can we as a corporation do to promote equality around us? And again, why would we do that? Why, why does that help us? Is it purely reputational? Does it help our hiring, recruitment, you know, retention, engagement? Uh, all of those things sort of need to be brought up into um, the company's, again, core competency and in this case, culture, so that it fits. It can't just be an add-on overlaid because everybody's doing it and we have to appear like everybody else. It really has to be genuine and authentic in order to, to achieve results. Mm. I, I really like how the recurring theme of building these components into culture, as opposed to the, the, the first reaction we all have is sort of this add-on, like what's this thing we can do? But for oil and gas companies, in addition to customers and investors, we operate in communities. So having a workforce that reflects the communities in which we operate is so important to building those bridges of support, of welcoming, and not to mention uh, recruiting and retention of, of staff as well. So I, I really like this idea of continuing to build this into the, the deep corporate culture um, as part of, of ESG work and strategy. Um, so so uh, pivoting again, I, a lot of what we're thinking about in this season of the podcast is how companies can pivot from feeling disrupted by the changes to being the disruptor themselves, to being proactive and, and rethinking how they're engaging in the world. And um, you have a, an opinion piece on, on um, the Persephone website titled, Boards are Woefully Behind on ESG. What can they do about it? And as we've talked about, 
this is this work is is hard, especially to take it out of the marketing arena and into the deep culture. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the role boards should play in this? A lot of oil and gas company boards are just starting to appoint their first director who's in charge of ESG. That director often does not have ESG experience. Um, what do you what should they how should boards be thinking about this and how should executive teams think about engaging with their boards? Well, first of all, you're exactly right. It's extremely hard for companies to pivot off of what has made them successful, right? It's it's much safer to continue with what you do that that brings in the money. Um, so change is not easy. I'm reminded of a, a book I just finished uh, called No Rules Rules. And it's the story of uh, Netflix. And, and the book starts out with... Um, uh, Reed Hastings going into uh, uh, Blockbuster to try and sell his company because at the time they started, you know, they were sort of an afterthought and Blockbuster owned the the, the world in their market and getting turned down <laughs> mm-hmm. and having to go back and tell his people, well, that didn't work. So we have to, but the point of the book was how do you make these pivots? How do you change from, you know, a business that was trying to compete with a huge incumbent by mailing DVDs to one that now owns Hollywood, you know, that, that is huge and it's not easy. And so, you know, some of the things you want to do is, is, is continue to, you know, scan this horizon around you and make sure that you understand, you know, where the world is going, but also, you know, be willing to take risks and how that manifests in the real world is to um, get the right people at every position and expect them to deliver. I mean, one of the, the lessons of the book is adequate performance gets you a nice severance package. Uh, you have to be the best at your position and prove it. Uh, it doesn't mean you, you know, you should always go towards safety. In fact, you should take risks. You should be candid. You should be willing to disrupt. And this is a real culture change for especially older companies that have been around for a long time. So going from the, that to exactly about the boards, um, I look at the, the sort of forced, um, you know, board members uh, at Exxon. I, I feel like that's going to be really tough. I can't imagine what those board meetings mm-hmm. are going to be like. Mm-hmm. It would be much better if boards of directors sort of reached out uh, to, you know, folks that are experts in a different way, a different field, mm-hmm. and, and try to incorporate them into their reality, which is, okay, everybody's still using oil and gas. Everybody still drives a car. Mm-hmm. We see this future. How can you help us? You know, but you're going mm-hmm. to have to find those people who are willing to help advise because they're educated in this space. They've, they've got a, um, a clear vision of where things are going from a policy standpoint, from the investor standpoint. Um, I think you're going to have to bring these cultures together. It almost goes back to our diversity conversation. They're going to have mm-hmm. to diversify in order to change. Right. It's really, and, and to, to keep pulling on some of those threads that you brought up, these companies have this interesting dual challenge. They have to meet perhaps decades of likely oil and gas demand, operational requirements, especially if, say, you're a utility that supplies um, gas for heating into a community. They're going to have to meet those requirements while simultaneously thinking about 
uh, preparing for and becoming a totally different kind of decarbonized energy company. Um, in some of your, your past lives in um, tech America, have you had to, to live with that kind of balance? And what kind of mindset do leaders need to have when you, ha when you have these two parallel tracks that seem to be in total opposition? I, I can remember when, when I was at Apple and we uh, introduced the iPhone and we knew that it would completely cannibalize the iPod business. Uh, and we had, you know, Steve Jobs was alive back then. And we had the, the kind of courage and leadership to know that if we didn't do it, somebody else would do it to us. Uh, it's that kind of leadership that is going to be required. If you know that one of your businesses will be, you know, eventually gone, what do you do about that? You know, how do you become part of that that solution? Uh, a couple of thoughts. You know, um, you're exactly right. I mean, I, I have a car. I'm going to keep driving that car. Most people have, you know, an investment in their cars. They're not going to leave that investment. So you're going to have to continue to produce what you produce. Now, there's two ways to do that. One is to, to go back to some of my early days as a, as a regulator you know, do that with as little emission as possible. There's a lot we can do in just sort of leak detection and repair and, and old school stuff that could be new again, just to, to deliver those services in a way that's as, uh, uh, you know, least impactful to the environment as possible. And then secondly, you know, look at adaptation. We just saw the, the recent IPCC report from the UN a couple of weeks ago that said, you know, climate change is here and it's only going to get worse. What does that mean to your business? I mean, from a real risk scenario, do you have assets that could be at risk uh, due to climate change? Do that kind of thinking as well. That's pure business just risk assessment. And then thirdly, and sort of overlaying it all, is that future scenario where your car competency to provide energy to the world, how does that look in five years, 10 years, 20 years, you know, uh, considering all of these future scenarios, where do you think you will be and what will you be producing? Because overlaying those first two, you know, lower your emissions, adapt to climate change, you have to be working on number three, which is what is my business strategy uh, for the longer term? Such good um, pragmatic advice, and I love the um, the Apple example. Uh, not just a real world uh, experience, but a spectacular metaphor for cannibalizing your own a bit current business in in the service of your future one. Um, so that that was wonderful. I, I'd love to um, pivot to you as a as an individual, as a leader. You've had several incarnations in your career, and I'd love to know what values have driven you to continue to reinvent yourself and to find these roles of what I would call service, service to the greater community. Uh, what values drive you and have brought you forward? Well, thank you for that. Uh, I really get asked that question. So I, re I appreciate it very much. Uh, it's a couple of things. One, you know, uh, as, a, as an older guy, you start to reflect on these things quite a bit. Uh, I am a, a lifelong environmentalist. I started my career that way back when it was considered kind of an oddball choice. And I'm still very motivated by that. But as I mentioned earlier, I'm also a realist, and therefore I see incremental change as, as being super important and understanding and sort of taking stock of the world the way it is, not the world you envision. Uh, and once you do that, you quickly realize that, and I say this in the book, 
business is the dominant social institution of our time. You know, we have mm-hmm. companies that have revenues larger than country GDPs and our stretch of supply chains that stretch around the world. You know, you can make such a huge difference through business and not fighting against business. And so for me anyway, those are prime motivators to want me that have led to the career choices I've made. The third I would say is um, I, I like to be a lifelong learner. If I'm not learning, I'm bored. Uh, so I tend to shake it up a lot. Uh, you know, this this new incarnation of being a, a startup guy, I'm learning so much about the world of VCs and investments. And, you know, uh, I'm reading all these books about business strategy. I'm I'm really loving that. But it goes back to the previous discussion. If you're not willing to disrupt, take some risks, maybe fail a couple of times, then you're really sort of just constrained to mediocrity of about where you are today. You're never going to grow. And so I, I think this, this personal reflection is actually a good um, metaphor on, on sort of the broader conversation we're having in terms of what companies and their directors and C-suite uh, executives need to do as well. I can't think of a better place to uh, to leave it. So thank you, Tim, for your time with us on the Energy Things podcast. It was my pleasure, Tisha, and I really enjoyed our conversation today. That was our episode today. Thanks so much to Tim Moen for taking the time to share his point of view uh, with us. You know what was a game-changing insight for me? It was this idea of proactively cannibalizing your current business through the invention of your future one. What an interesting uh, framing for us to be thinking about as we're contemplating our dual roles in the energy future. I'd like to know what you found interesting and insightful. So visit our podcast website at energythinks.com podcast and let me know. It is super valuable if you take a moment and rate us wherever you listen to your podcast. I want to thank Adon Rubio, Lindsay Gage, and Michael Tanner for all the work they do to make the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.